0: You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story. Embracing a new identity in Jesus. Finding belonging in the church community. Cultivating virtue through redemptive habits. Understanding our context in this current cultural moment. Laboring in renewed vocations for the common good and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first text in 1 Corinthians 12, you can find that in your pew Bible starting from page nine fifty nine nine five nine. And as always, you are welcome to take a pew Bible home with you if you do not have one at home. First Corinthians 12, starting from verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? This is the word of the Lord.
1: All rise to the reading of the gospel. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Today's reading is in Luke 15, 1-7, found on page 821 in your pew Bibles. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The Gospel of the Lord.
2: Praise to you, Lord Christ. Be seated. Once more, good morning, church. Hey, good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful, very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, today is the third Sunday in the season of Epiphany. It's a season where the church remembers that Christ is the light of the world and that his light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not able to overcome it. And in this season, we as a parish are seeking for Christ to illuminate us in our lives and our place in this world. And to that end, we are in the midst of this sermon series that is seeking to clarify and focus and hopefully illuminate our reason for existing, Redeemer's why. And thus far, we have summarized our answer to that question with this phrase, Gospel Formation for Missional Presence. And you can read more about this on the inside cover of your liturgy. You'll find a more detailed explanation there. We desire for the good news of the renewal of all things in Jesus to so radically reshape our inner and outer lives that we become people who participate with God in his work in the world. And we do this not primarily through our beliefs and doctrines, although those are essential, but with our practices. This is practice-based practice based Practices of story and identity, belonging, virtue, context, vocation, and imagination. Last week, we examined the first two. The last two weeks, we've examined the first two practices of story and identity. And today, we do practice number three, practices of belonging. As we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So, one of the most treasured possessions of the Murata family is a pair of simple clay coffee mugs. Here's why. Uh, Years ago, my wife Rachel and I had just purchased our first home, a little three bedroom rancher in Charlottesville near the University of Virginia, and we wanted to get to know our neighbors, or rather, the more extroverted one in the couple wanted to get to know our neighbors. Uh, So I printed flyers, and I walked the neighborhood, and I invited our neighbors to an ice cream social in our front yard. And most people were friendly, some were a little bit reserved, but one interaction in particular went very poorly. Um, I could tell people were home in the house, I knocked on the door, nobody answered. I knocked again, still nobody. I knocked a third time, and the door opened a crack, and I could see the security chain still barring... uh, the door. And a gruff voice said, What do you want? And I said, this sort of like tearful Easter bunny voice, like, Hey, I'm new to the neighborhood. We just moved here. We're having an ice cream social in our front yard this weekend. Do you want to come? What are you selling? He asked. And I'm not selling anything. I just want to invite you to a party at our home. Are you with the young Republicans? I hate those guys. He asked. I was like, No, I'm not with any political group. It's just a party. Just a party. It's just a party. I handed him a flyer through the crack in the door, and he's like, "That's fine." He slammed the door, and I went away thinking, "You win some, you lose some." That's probably a neighbor I'll never get to know. Later that weekend, uh, on a warm summer Saturday afternoon, people from all over our neighborhood walked down Mosley Drive to our front yard, and we had lemonade and iced tea and some snacks, and of course, ice cream. And an elderly couple that I didn't recognize and I hadn't remembered speaking to uh, walked up and they unlatched the gate uh, to let themselves into the yard and they came up and they approached me and they were carrying a small box. They smiled, they introduced themselves and I recognized the man's gruff, kind of grumbly, raspy voice. Same guy. He handed me a box and inside were these two handmade clay coffee mugs. Welcome to the neighborhood. (laughs) He grumbled at me. And that's the moment that I knew we had passed from not belonging to belonging in our neighborhood. Listen, every human being breathing oxygen right now shares the same fundamental need to belong, to be at home in a community of people, and to know and to be known. And yet every single one of us struggles with this, don't we? Uh, Some of you heard me allude to this last week. An article came out that recently ranked Richmond as the fourth loneliest city in America. Now, this is by residential data, not by reported feelings, okay? So what this means is that Richmond has the fourth highest percentage of people who live alone. Nearly half of the residential homes in Richmond are occupied by single-person households. And you might be thinking, if you're relatively new to town, you might be thinking, I left the hustle and grind of northern Virginia and Washington, D.C. culture in search of a better life. I moved to Richmond to slow down to put down roots and make friends and find community. And I just want you to know you didn't make a mistake. Fear not. Richmond is number four on the list, but D.C. is number one. <laughs> so you did the right thing. This is an upgrade. Now, I find this whole study actually very fascinating because it's, it's positing that loneliness is based upon actually living alone. And that makes us wonder if there is something that's actually objective about belonging outside of and independent from our feelings about belonging. Because when you and I start talking about belonging, I wonder, do we mean anything other than just feeling like we fit in? Do we mean more than that? And the idea that we're going to explore together in the next minutes is going to be that, yes, we do mean much more than just feeling like we fit in. And the story of the Bible has so much to say about our basic human need to belong. Just think about this with me. If you look at the cover art on the front page of the liturgy you received when you walked in, you will see an iconic depiction of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Christians have for centuries, even millennia, of, uh, millennia, believed that one of the core doctrines or pieces of theology in the Christian faith is that the Holy Trinity is the original community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing and indwelling each other from all eternity. Some of the early church fathers used a Greek word to describe the life and love of the Holy Trinity. It's this word perichoresis. It includes the idea of complete interpenetration, a kind of perfect, loving indwelling, or you could describe it as a dance, I love that. A divine dance of perfect love for all eternity. And humanity is born out of that perichoresis of the Holy Trinity, that mutual belonging that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is why God can look at the first human being, Adam, and evaluate him all by himself on his own and say, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not just saying he, Adam, feels lonely. It's saying If this creature really is to reflect the divine image, then it's going to have to reflect it communally, not just individually. Humanity is made for relationship. But if you know the biblical story, you know it quickly moves from belonging to estrangement. Adam turns on Eve, Cain turns on Abel, Noah's neighbors turn against him, and the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 is the nail in the coffin. At that point, humanity is divided and estranged, not only from God, but also from each other. But God does not leave humanity in that state. Immediately, in Genesis chapter 12, the next chapter in the story, God begins to form a people, a community, for himself and for each other in the nation of Israel. Israel is God's new community, and the stories of belonging through the Old Testament are all over the place. You think about the hospitality that Abraham shows, you think about the loyalty shown between Naomi and Ruth, you think about the sheltering kindness of Boaz, the friendship of Jonathan and David, the fellowship of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all throughout the Old Testament, you see these moments, these incidences of belonging. And then you get to Jesus. And you see the radical belonging practiced by Jesus from calling the apostles to welcoming women into his band of disciples to dining with sinners and tax collectors, defending prostitutes, inviting in rich young rulers, late night conversations with Pharisees. Jesus practices radical belonging. And this points us forward towards the radical belonging that is at the end of the biblical story where all of God's lost people will finally dwell at home with God and with each other. The story of the Bible, from beginning to end, is the story of belonging created, belonging lost, belonging regained, and belonging consummated. And the text that Lane read just a few minutes ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the text about belonging. It's about what does it mean for you as an individual to belong, and what does it mean for us as a church to belong with each other? And as we explore this over the next few minutes, we're going to do so from a couple different angles. And if you're the kind of person that takes notes, here are your categories, okay? We're going to talk about the invitation to belong and then the search for belonging. And then third and finally, what it means to finally come home. The invitation to belong, the search for belonging, and coming home. We'll start with the invitation. Where does belonging happen? Well, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, belonging happens in the church. And I, I absolutely recognize that not everybody in this room is a Christian, and even some of the Christians in this room don't think belonging happens in the church. So even if you're skeptical of that statement, let's let's explore it together. The idea here is that your individuality finds its belonging in the larger body of the church. First Corinthians chapter twelve uses a metaphor. It's the church as a body with many members, and that body is the body of Jesus, the body of Christ. That's why the, our passage begins with verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And this body of people functions in many of the same ways that a single human body functions, both in its diversity and in its solidarity. Let's think about the way the diversity of the body is described here in this text. You get verse 13 where the author writes, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. So Jews or Greeks, that's racial and cultural diversity. Slave or free, that's economic and class diversity. And then you have diversity of gifts that is described later in the text. The section that immediately precedes this one is about spiritual gifts, which includes both the natural gifts that you're born with, the skills that you develop over time, and special gifts that you receive from the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and indwells you. And so diversity, a lot of people use that word in different ways, diversity in this sense means that you can belong no matter where you come from, no matter what kind of resources you have or do not have, and no matter what you can do or not do. And the church, in this sense, if you think about it, is able to be diverse and hold together in a way that no other family or institution or organization is able to do. Because even though the diversity being described here is as vast and as wide as all of humanity, the unity is as strong as God, which is the meaning of that phrase all drink of one spirit. Now, as I'm describing this, if you're thinking to yourself right now, Like, so what? Or that's not very impressive. I kind of half agree with you. Most of us don't find anything that I just said particularly revelatory or interesting because we take the goodness of diversity for granted, right? That's our moment. That's the cultural moment we live in. But we must remember that this idea of the goodness of diversity within a family or an organization or a body like the church, that is a profoundly Christian idea. Why do college brochures and corporate websites depict a smiling group of people from different races and cultures on the cover to show the goodness and the virtue of their organization? Do you know where the root of that idea? It's right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That is the origin and the root of that idea of the goodness of diversity. But in the 1st century into which this is written, diversity is not good. The Roman Empire does not love diversity. The Roman Empire wants to make you Roman. Period. The end. The Jewish people did not love diversity, at least not that time in history. To be Jewish was to be God's chosen people and to be clean in a way that the Gentiles were not. And Gentiles in turn did not love diversity because why would you want to mix with Jews who literally believe that God loves them more than he loves you, right? Those are not the people you want to be with. One of the distinguishing marks of the early church was its radical diversity of belonging. Now, why is diversity so important to the church today? Is it just kind of for public virtue signaling purposes, or is there something necessary here? Here are a couple of the necessary elements of church body diversity. First, it is an antidote to inferiority. Church body diversity is an antidote to inferiority. That's why the author writes, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, dot, 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 I don't belong. Isn't it true that church communities can make us feel oh so inferior? And we instinctively know that's wrong when it happens. We know that churches shouldn't be that way. Why? Well, the text explains why. Because true diversity in the church values the different things that people bring to the table, not only in their gifts, but in their selves, in their personhood, in who they are. None of us should look at each other and wish we were more like one another. Church body diversity is an antidote to inferiority. And it's also, on the flip side, an antidote to superiority. This is why the author says, conversely, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Isn't it just as true that churches can tend to be venues for people to feel superior to others, right? Are some of us more essential than others? Who isn't good enough to belong here? Churches can tend to be places where there are circles within circles within circles of belonging. And it can feel like to be a part of a church is one long endless race to get to the middle of that circle somewhere. Let me let you in a little secret. I don't feel like I'm in the middle of the Redeemer's circle. How is that possible? I planted the church. Shouldn't I be in the middle? I'm not. It's the weirdest feeling. It feels like somewhere there is an inner circle here at Redeemer that I'm not a part of. I don't know. I can't figure out where it meets. (laughs) It's not here. Everybody feels this. And churches can be so disheartening in this way. Um, there are desert fathers in the history of the church who write so well about this tendency to feel superior to others within the church community. And they write in response to that the monk must die to his neighbor and never judge him in any way at all, whatever. Death to neighbor means renouncing the power of judgment over someone else. Death to neighbor means renouncing the power of judgment over someone else. There is no room for a feeling of superiority within the church. This author goes on to write, if you are occupied with your own faults, you have no time to see those of your neighbor. (laughs) I do not love that quite as much. Uh, A different author puts it this way. In essence, you are neither inferior nor superior to anyone. True self-esteem and true humility arise out of that one realization. In the eyes of the ego, self-esteem and humility are contradictory. But in truth, they are one and the same. So diversity in the body is an antidote to both inferiority and superiority. But diversity is not the only important dynamic at play in the church body. There is also solidarity. There is diversity, but there's also solidarity. This is why the Apostle Paul writes about a body that suffers together. What does it mean when he writes, If one member suffers, all suffer together. Not, some people in the room right now are parents of children, and some of you are not. That's good diversity. We like that. Let me share an insight that many parents have learned over the years as they experience what it's like to be a mother or a father of young children. It's a phrase that some of you are familiar with, familiar with which is, you are only as happy as your most unhappy child. You're only as happy as your most unhappy child. In other words, your emotional level can only go as high as your most unhappy kids bottom, right? Like that's, that's where you max out, happiness-wise. So in a sense, if we talk about this in, this in the context of a church, you are only as happy as the most suffering member of the church family. Now, that's only one side of the emotional spectrum. Then there's the other side, a body that rejoices together, even across differences. What does it mean when the Apostle Paul writes, if one member is honored, all rejoice together? Well, in another sense, You're only as sad as your happiest member. So you're only as happy as your saddest member and you're only as sad as your happiest member. And if right now you're thinking to yourself, that sounds emotionally confusing. (laughs) That sounds like an emotional roller coaster. I don't want to ride. I don't think it has to be that way. What what the, the apostle Paul is describing is what it means to be emotionally interconnected, to be bound up with the lives of other people. It means you care, you genuinely care, and you're genuinely cared for. Your lives are interconnected, and therefore you are not alone. Do you see and hear the invitation to belong here? No matter who you are, no matter what your race or your culture or your economic class or your education level or the gifts that you have, the church is a place where you can belong, where you can live an interconnected life with others on such a deep level that it can only be described as a single organism, one body. Now, we need to behold this invitation because... All of us, if you're anything like me, are on a search for belonging. And we tend to go about it, not just a little bit differently from the way church belonging works, but I would argue in completely the opposite way. So we've talked about this invitation to belong. Now let's talk about the search, the search for belonging. You and I tend to choose tribalism over diversity. And by tribalism, I mean, we tend to ask the question, where are my people? What do I mean when I say my people? Well, I mean, people like me. People who think and act and, most importantly, vote the way I do, right? Tribalism is an answer to the pain of feeling like I don't belong. Brene Brown uh, writes, trying to fit in is what we do when we know deep down that we do not belong. The closest destination in our search to belong is to find a small tribe of like-minded people and then change ourselves in order to fit in with that group. That's why we end up with these kind of sub-tribes, these smaller little families. you got your CrossFit family, or your work family, or your political family, or your recreation family. These tribes feel easier, a bit more natural, because in the context of these smaller settings, what we do is we end up creating an us-versus-them dynamic. And there are few feelings and emotions more powerful in bonding a group together than a shared common enemy, right? So whether the enemy is your percentage of body fat or the law firm down the street, or liberals or conservatives, once the common enemy is identified, an us versus them dynamic is established, and we can begin to bond. Now I've found my people. And we choose tribalism over diversity. Second, we choose isolation over solidarity. Our homes may become... Not places of diverse community belonging, but rather these fortresses of solitude into which we retreat to shut out the discomforting, incessant suffering and rejoicing of other people. If I'm suffering and other people are rejoicing, I do not want to be around them, right? It makes me feel so lonely. It's so annoying and irritating if you're going through a really hard season and other people are just killing it. I don't want to be around them. What about if I'm rejoicing and other people are suffering? I don't want them around me. They're going to kill the vibe, right? I was reading earlier this week a poem by David White, and I won't read the whole thing, just the last two lines. He writes about his home. This is the temple of my adult aloneness, and I belong to that aloneness as I belong to my life. This aloneness that he's describing is intensified by the way you and I use technology, even and perhaps especially by technology that claims to build community. Dr. Sherry Turkle is the founder of the MIT Initiative on Technology and the Self. And she's the author of two books that are really helpful on this topic. One's called Alone Together, the other is called Reclaiming Conversation. And she writes about how technology offers us a kind of pseudo-intimacy, When I feel lonely or anxious or restless, I can pull out my phone and text 15 different people and get responses from all of them. And it feels so good to be connected. But the connection is weak. I don't have their full attention and they don't have mine. There is a connection there, but there is no solidarity of interconnectedness. And the more and more I choose this mode of connection, the weaker my community becomes. All the while, the dopamine hits of receiving texts and likes and hearts and responses tell me that I'm more connected than ever before. It's like drinking salt water to quench your thirst. So we tend to choose tribalism over diversity, and we tend to choose isolation over solidarity. And then finally, we tend to choose walls over welcome. Churches so often get this part wrong by accident, not on purpose, but by accident churches can inadvertently become too narrowly focused. We tend to ask questions in churches like, what kind of people are we trying to reach? Um, A number of years ago, before our family moved to Richmond to help plant Redeemer, we experienced some church planting coaching. What a strange thing. And we were taught something called the homogenous unit principle. The homogenous unit principle which is the principle that basically identifies and recruits a tribe and plays off the tribalism that already exists and uses the inertia and momentum of that tribalism to feed into growing a church. It is absolutely the fastest way to grow a church. It is also the fastest way to build something that is not a church, right? But rather a kind of quasi-Christian tribe. We choose walls over welcome by becoming too narrowly focused, and we do this also through just straight up resisting the presence of new people. Sometimes it's not that complicated. We say things like, our church is getting too big, which usually means, translation, there's a lot of people around that I don't know, and I'm not sure I like them. They don't seem like my kind of people. They seem different from me. Our bishop, my pastor, John Guernsey, likes to say that when most people join a church, they want the doors to close right behind them. The last time our church changes is when you stepped foot in through here, right? After you arrived, no more changing, right? We tend to want belonging for ourselves more than we want belonging for other people. They can go find belonging somewhere else. This seat's taken, right? So we choose walls over welcome by becoming too narrowly focused, by resisting the presence of new people, and then finally, by requiring believing before belonging. And here's what I mean. We grow weary. We just get tired Of doing the constant work of hospitality and explanation and translation and assistance. And so we start requiring people to come pre discipled. And we end up doing what colleges do when a lot of students want to attend. We just raise entrance requirements, right? And so soon the church becomes a place that only attracts outside people who already believe and practice all the same things that the insiders do. And we're back to tribalism. We've come full circle. So tribalism, isolation, walls, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves you and I stuck in an echo chamber of people who already think and live the same way we do. We're stuck by ourselves in this pseudo-community mediated by technology, which is like drinking salt water, and stuck behind our walls not wanting to let new people in. It's no wonder, therefore, that we tend to feel lonely and we tend to feel isolated and we tend to feel estranged from one another. But listen if you can. Our feelings of isolation and estrangement are not primarily psychological problems to be overcome with therapy and better friends. No, they are the fruit of sin, which is our estrangement from God, who is the source of all community, the perichoresis of mutual belonging in the Holy Trinity. Our primary problem with belonging is not the way all of us tend to feel left out. But the deeper problem of being is of being lost, of actually being cast out, Imagine for a moment a child that is lost in the woods. The child feels the pain of isolation and vulnerability and being separated from family and friends. What does the child need most in that moment? Well, our society would tend to think that what the child needs most is a guru or a self-help manual to help them process their feelings of loneliness. No! What does the kid need? He needs to be rescued, right? Just for someone to come find them and bring them home. And that is why Jesus answers our questions of belonging with a story that is the parable of the lost sheep. That's our gospel lesson that Steve read just a few minutes ago, where Jesus tells the story of the good shepherd who goes out to the one who is lost and who does not belong. How does Jesus embody that? How does he do it? Well, we see it in his incarnation, God in human flesh going out from heaven, emptying himself. We see it in the crucifixion, where Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The perichoresis in that moment is broken, no longer the mutual indwelling and belonging of the Holy Trinity. We see it when Christ descends into Sheol, into hell, fully estranged from God and from life itself. And then in his resurrection, belonging is restored. The perichoresis is restored, but with a new opening, a fourth seat at the table for you. Jesus experienced the pain of estrangement from the community of the Holy Trinity and the fellowship of humanity in order to restore us to both. Jesus gave up the privilege of belonging in order to include all who are lost and who do not belong. And the same Jesus has come looking for you and he wants to bring you home. Belonging begins, listen if you can, not with finding your community, but with Jesus finding you. Belonging happens when you stop trying to find your tribe. Stop it. And when you allow Jesus to bring you into his home, which is himself, his very person, his body, the church. Author Wendell Berry, in his little collection of short stories, The Wild Birds, writes, the way we are, we are members of each other all of us, everything. The difference, and this is Southern language, the difference ain't in who is a member and who is not, but in who knows it and who don't. Earlier, we asked this question about objectivity. Is there something objective about belonging outside of and independent from our feelings about belonging? And you need to understand that membership and belonging are not feelings to chase. They are realities to practice. And so we might wonder, could it be that the structure of our present lives together actually runs counter to the vision that scripture is setting forth for us and the story that the gospel tells about belonging? Might we need to restructure the architecture of our lives around the reality of membership in the body of Christ? This is what we mean when we say gospel formation for missional presence. We need the good news of belonging through the gospel to be formed in us. We don't just believe it. We practice it. And so the gospel says to you, you belong. Now live like it. The gospel says to you, your neighbors also belong. Will you treat them accordingly? So let's end by just thinking together about some practices of gospel belonging. Let's begin with practices of gospel diversity and belonging. Let's think about the hospitality that we are all invited to practice. One of the things that we've said for years at Redeemer is that the front porch of the church is your front porch. What we mean is that the primary way that we extend this belonging to our neighbors and to our city is not in Redeemer's ministry programs. It's not even on Sunday morning. It's actually in the hospitality that we all practice in our own homes. One of the best tools or resources that you have to extend the gospel in belonging towards those who are lost is your kitchen table. It's one of the best tools you have. Think about the way that you might invite friends and coworkers and neighbors after they sit at your kitchen table to come here on a Sunday. And when you do that, you'll have to work through all of the glorious awkwardness of bringing somebody who isn't familiar with this group to come and worship with us on a Sunday. And you'll have to sit there and you'll have to answer all their questions. And you'll have to sit with the anxiety of wondering what I'm gonna preach about that Sunday, right? (laughs) And that's okay. Because what you're doing is you're inviting somebody to come and to belong, even if they do not yet know that that's what they're looking for. Think about how we might practice this in our small groups. Your small group should not be your tribe or your sub-tribe. When your small group is full of people with whom you don't naturally connect, then your membership belonging in the body is most gloriously on display. This matters most when you're in a room full of people who are in reality your brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet it just doesn't feel like it. That's when this really comes into play. Think about the way you might extend belonging on Sunday. Maybe you could be one of those people that stands outside on the front step, shivering in the cold, saying, welcome, welcome, welcome over and over again as new people walk past you. These are just a few practices of gospel diversity, welcoming in and helping others who are not like you find belonging. Think about God practices of gospel solidarity. Think about serving and caring and praying for those who are suffering. Asking the question, who in our church family is hurting the most this week? And how can I go and just be hurt with them? Asking the question, who in our church family is celebrating this week? And how can I just go celebrate with them? Even if my life's not going so well right now. Think about gospel sacraments of belonging. Think about what we do in baptism. In baptism, after we finish putting water on somebody's head, whether they're a little child or whether they're a full-grown adult, we say to them, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever, belonging to Jesus. And then the whole church stands together and our voices boom out in a startling but glorious way as we say together, quote, we welcome you into the fellowship of the church. And that twofold belonging, both with God and Christ and with each other, is on full display whenever we baptize someone into the church. We also see it at the table in the Eucharist in Holy Communion. In the chapter right before the one that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's this perplexing little phrase where it calls us whenever we come to the Lord's table to, quote, discern the body. What does that mean? Well, you get a chance to practice that in just a few minutes when as we come to the Lord's table to receive the bread and wine, the body and blood of Jesus, you get to see all of these people, young and old, getting up out of their seats and walking all, over, all around you. And in that moment, you are discerning the body. It's us. We are the body. And you can see it, see us on display. Listen, the body is a metaphor comparing two different kinds of material physicality the human body of Jesus and the human bodies of the members of Jesus. The body is not, please hear me, the body is not a physical metaphor for a non-physical reality. No, there is no goodness in the world that is not bodily and realistic and local. It does no good at all to talk about belonging to the church in an invisible, non-material way. To do so, renders diversity and solidarity as merely things to believe in, not practices to take up. A body is something to see and to feel and to embrace and to keep company with. And so the invitation is to see and feel and embrace and keep company with these people, the body. Now, let's end by going back to the coffee mugs. Those two coffee mugs were a gift that symbolized our belonging in the neighborhood. I actually drank from one of them this morning right around 6.15 as I thought about you all and what we would talk about here together. And in our house, we don't just keep those coffee mugs on the shelf and we don't wrap them up and put them away in storage to protect them and make sure they never get broken because we've got little kids in the house and it's gonna happen someday. No, we use them every day. They are our everyday mugs and we drink from them. And we also use them to offer belonging to anyone who comes into our home for a cup of coffee or hot tea or a mug of hot cocoa. And listen, the gospel is that kind of gift. It's a gift of belonging from which you may drink. It's a gift that you may extend in welcome to any stranger to find belonging here in our home, the church. And so listen, friends, you have been welcomed in Jesus into the family of God, the family of belonging. And now we get to go and welcome others into that family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the belonging that you have extended to us and invited us into in Jesus. Thank you for a seat at the table with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would help us to not only receive this gift, but also extend it to others, especially those who are most lost and who need to find their belonging in you. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit... RedeemerRVA.org We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.